Secrets thrive in the dark. Our pain is directly connected to what matters to us. In this episode, we speak with psychologist Diana Hill about her journey as a therapist and explore what it means to turn and face your darkness. Through self-compassion, we can bring light into those tender spaces for our benefit and for the benefit of others. We're all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves will disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. I am Chris McCurry. I am a clinical child psychologist in Seattle, Washington, and my pleasure to be here with my dear friend and colleague, Emma Waddington. Mm-hmm. And I am also a clinical psychologist all the way in Singapore. So we're across the globe at the moment. And we are pleased and privileged to have Dr. Diana Hill with us this evening. Welcome, Diana. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. So uh, in chatting previously, we talked about a potential theme for conversation. And we talked about there's this cliche that therapists get into the business because they're really just trying to heal themselves. And mm-hmm. I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. And yeah. sometimes that's quite explicit. I think about all the substance abuse counselors who are the former people who have formerly struggled with addictions and they know the territory and it gives them a lot of credibility with their clients. Others, the past may not be quite as explicit in terms of how they enter their work. And that maybe is more of a shadow side. Mm. So I thought it might be interesting to talk more of that implicit. I'm focusing on the kinds of things that either gave me trouble once upon a time or continue to give me trouble and perhaps get triggered by the things that show up in the therapy room, the stories that the clients bring in. Working with adolescents, telling them about my adolescence never seemed to buy any any credibility with them because I don't think they ever <laughs> believed that I was an adolescent. That's right. Um, but certainly in working with parents and my own issues and struggles with parenting, it's come up in the room and I, I can feel my my buttons getting pushed and it's it's been a big part of my my journey and, and the challenge of the work that I've done. And some people might describe that as counter-transference, it can go by a lot of different terms. So I just yeah. thought I'd throw that out there and see what you all had to, to say about that phenomenon. Yeah, I love this idea that we're going to be exploring our dirty little secrets in both in terms of our in our professional world, it's it it is true that it's a bit of a cliche that somehow we have it all figured out. And actually part of our power sometimes is when we admit that we don't, and those are some of the most yeah, the, the most connecting moments. So here's an invitation to you, Diana, to share with us if you have any of these life's dirty little secrets and we can have a a chat about how if it still manifests in your life today in any way. 
when you asked me about coming on a podcast and you mentioned the topics of we could talk about act or we could talk about dirty little secrets, I was like, let's talk about dirty little secrets. <laughs> I, I have always been drawn to sort of the darker side of things. I think that's probably why I was drawn to act in terms of Kelly Wilson was my entry point as it is for many. But, you know, when I was about 14, 15, I had a really severe eating disorder. And I remember my mom took me to a retreat, a retreat on Shumash land where we were doing, we were staying in yurts and we were doing this sweat lodge. And it was a wow. retreat with a, a healer, someone that worked with people with eating disorders. And she would take people wow. to all these different healing experiences. And my parents were all down for that. And I remember on that retreat really well, sitting in this yurt, and we were all sharing about our experiences. And there was a woman in her, probably about her 30s there, wow. who was a therapist. And she was sharing about how between clients, she'd see a client and then she had like a two hour window. Yeah. She'd go to the convenience store and binge and then oh, wow. purge and then go back to seeing clients again. And mm -hmm. I remember looking at her and just being like, that is horrific. <laughs> that's horrible. Yeah. That's how could anyone do that? I, I just don't even understand. And I had this real, like, how dare you? Right. But fast forward in my life, a number of years later, I had recovered really actually well from anorexia, which, which was my first eating disorder and the most severe one to recover mm -hmm. from it, kind of a miracle. I did that. But recovered from that. I had bulimia, recovered from that. I had done a lot mm -hmm. of work and I decided I wanted to go into research eating disorders. And Chris, my, my reason actually wasn't the physician heal thyself reason. It was yes. I didn't want people to feel as terrible as I felt for as long as I felt terrible. I had wow. this real, like I had, I had found something in my recovery mm -hmm. that I really wanted to share. Wow. So, so my dirty little secret is yeah. that in my late 20s, I went to study with Linda Craighead, who's this renowned researcher in eating disorders. And I was at a research-based university. And in my first year, I relapsed. Wow. And in like that woman that I saw that I had all that disgust towards, I had that so much towards myself, so much shame, so much embarrassment, so much fear that I would get found out. And I ended up withdrawing my, after my first year of graduate school. No one knew why. I went to actually a yoga ashram to go study yoga. But that was the, the sort of moment where I thought about that. Like how many other people have something like that going on and they feel like they can't say yeah. what's, you know, what's happening for them? And, and especially therapists or physicians or people that are in healing professions. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's certainly never got discussed in any graduate training that I had or any supervision that I had. The, the message was don't complain. Don't even actually be weak. I remember being criticized in my internship program by one of my supervisors because I described a, a psychotic woman who was coming through our, our program. I described her situation as poignant and uh, my supervisor was kind of disparaging of that. Wow. I think I feel really in awe, Diana, that you know, the courage that you have had to share this with us. I really appreciate and recognize that 
it's thanks to that experience that, you know, you're here with us today, but you're also an incredibly humble and compassionate clinician. And as you were sharing it, I just felt the emotion of you as a student wanting to help others from that inside out place, because you knew exactly how difficult it had been. And I can just imagine that moment where you saw yourself relapsing and that sense of failure must have been horrendous and gut-wrenching, actually, because you had recovered and you, in a way, I guess, in that very sort of touching way, wanted to really be able to help. And yet there you are confronted right up against the monster that you thought you'd escaped. And I guess... I guess that's part of the the question and the sort of conversation here is, do we ever really get to escape these monsters? It's a very act concept that we really need to snuggle up and recognize that there's always a seat for them as another passenger or as a co-pilot, that they really don't ever go. And so my question to you is, how do you navigate now with this co-passenger? How does it continue to be? a part of your life and how do you hold it in a way that it doesn't limit you? Mm-hmm. And I imagine sometimes it does limit you like it limits many of us. Well, I mentioned sort of in the story, the sort of theme for me was disgust, disgust towards uh, that woman and then yeah. disgust towards myself. And I think that what's really changed for me is that I look at that time in my life and I don't recoil from it or find it disgusting or berate myself for it. I understand it more deeply now. And I think that actually my practice, my practice Mm -hmm. of of working with clients and because I don't feel that towards clients when they tell me their most shameful thing, I don't feel disgusted. I feel, as you said, like I'm very privileged to receive this, this gift of their vulnerability so I have, I, I, now I have a different relationship with that, with that part of me, that, that time in my life where I feel more, I do feel more compassion and understanding. And like you said, I, I look back and I'm like, how, how challenging and courageous to have yes. to choose, to choose to let yes. go of your PhD, to hold yes. on to your recovery. Yes. And, and that choice has come up for me many times in different ways and different flavors of feeling at the crossroads of, I'm going to have to let go of something that I maybe really want mm. in, in the service of something that's really important. I recently left a, a podcast that had 2 million downloads. Yes, we all know <laughs> so it. Yeah, yeah, big, big podcast. It wasn't a crossroads of like, this is my recovery or I stay in a podcast, but it was, but it had that flavor yeah. of to the, to the right of me stood something that I knew that I, I needed to do for myself. And for yes. me, that was things like creative freedom and working with my partner and flexibility. And I, I wanted to bring so much more of the spiritual world into right. my podcast. Yeah. I'm interviewing a, a monk from oh. the lineage of Thich Nhat Hanh who was who was at Thich Nhat Hanh's side for 16 years. I have the privilege of interviewing him on Friday. And he doesn't have a social media presence and he has not a lot of followers. <laughs> but that's the choice, right? The choice to turn right. towards something that you deeply care about, but to let go of something. And, and for me, the, 
the letting yeah. go back in the PhD times was like letting go of the ego and the what will people think and how are my parents ever going to feel I worked so hard to get into this program and my my future is ahead of me to let go and and be willing to enter the mystery the mystery of possibility that if I if I listen deeply to what is right for me I'll be okay I'll, I'll sort of it's not always going to be what other people would choose for you but so that's how it shows up for me again and again in my life I have taken lots of zigzaggy turns that people may look at and like, why are you doing that? But inside, yeah. I know that I'm doing that because it's guided by my values, really. Yes. Guided by my values and, and, and self-compassion, I would say. It, you're talking about leaps of faith that, you know, this is going to work out. This is, this is the right choice to make. And sometimes we just don't even know what we're leaping into, mm. but we know we need to leap. Yeah. Yeah. And that moment where you jump mm -hmm. into that place and it's, it's, Never heard of it until recently, the symbol in Buddhism called the Yuna Gnome, I think it is, which is like a squiggle. <laughs> it looks like a squiggle. But the idea is that the path to nirvana is never straight. It's up, it's down, it's around. You go back on yourself, you take the wrong turn. But, you know, as they say in act, the other side of suffering is always what is really important. And so listening to you, Diana, and in so many other occasions, I've seen this kind of courage to step into the unknown because there are things that matter in that space, if it's uncertain and scary. There's a therapist that I love, Francis Weller. He writes on grief and he has this incredible book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And he talks about in the book how we all need to be an apprentice to grief. We need to, to walk around next to it and learn from it. And I've been thinking lately that I haven't had as much of a, an apprenticeship with grief in my life as much as I've had an apprenticeship with uncertainty. And yes. that if I can walk around with uncertainty and really befriend it and just get comfortable in that state, like totally uncertain, then I have this I, nirvana in the now basically, like the ability yeah. to, to be free in the now and the here and now, if I can develop that skill set. So in the acceptance process, there's a process of just letting go, letting go, letting go, leaning in, moving towards what's, what you're curious about, what's uncomfortable in your body, what's uncomfortable in this moment. But I really do think it's an apprenticeship to uncertainty or to unknown. I love that. Well, there's, there's so much freedom in that. Yeah. And that's, that's really the, the heart of anxiety is uncertainty. And we are, we are the anxious species. And there, is, there is so much freedom, isn't there? It's that ability to actually choose. You're actually choosing. And life isn't choosing for you. You're actually choosing. If you can sit in that space of uncertainty and befriend. If, if I could go back just for a moment to your, your mentioning disgust and I think about after my son was born, and infants are, are pretty gross. They, they do all kinds of stuff. They throw up on your shoulder, and they have poopy diapers, and, and things that would ordinarily, in other circumstances, perhaps with even other, other children, would be like, I don't want to deal with that. When it's your own child, you just lean into it, and uh, you don't even really think about it. It's a total reframe because it's your kid. So you, when it's your client, 
and your role in that relationship is to be the compassionate helper. Yeah, the, something that would ordinarily be quite repelling just isn't. And then vice versa, you see things that are a client experiences as disgusting. There's no relationship with disgust. I had, I had this fascinating client once who had a, a fruit and vegetable phobia. And so we worked on like in session, I'd have like, I'd hold like a banana on my head and we'd have the whole session. <laughs> and then little did she know when she found me that I had this whole orchard of fruit trees and it, we grow a lot of our own foods. So we have this vegetable oh, garden. So we'd go down to the garden. We'd just go sit by the lettuce. That was our exposure therapy. It was the best ever. I mean, it was like <laughs> enjoyable for me. But that's the other thing that things that, that maybe someone else experiences is totally. disgusting. It's so based on the story that our mind has made of this conceptualized story about what is disgusting or not. And so my clients have taught me a lot about disgust and how to look at it from different angles as well. And, it's, and just listening to this, I'm thinking the double standards, like as you were describing your experience, Diana, with the two instances that you described sitting there in a group with a 30-year-old. I'm filled with admiration for that little 14-year-old. What courage that must have taken. And also, as you dropped out of college, I don't feel any disgust. I, I can understand. I feel that those were very, very difficult moments, but disgust doesn't come in. But I, I can hear you felt the disgust. And I'm just struck by the double standard that we often have with ourselves, that we will really feel deep shame or disappointment in our behaviors that if they were displayed by someone else, we would feel deep compassion for. And that's part of the journey of this podcast is to sort of recognize that so many of these little secrets that we carry are so common and that we're all really in the same soup. And the hope is to have more compassion for each other, but mostly for ourselves, actually because life is tough and lots of things show up for everybody <laughs> throughout our lives. And that this sort of idea of being more compassionate towards ourselves is still such a foreign concept. And also the recognition that who knows where we got some of these things. I mean, where, where does a vegetable phobia show up in somebody's life? What's, what's the etiology of that? Steve Hayes used to say, if you had a perfect video of your life from conception on, you might possibly be able to say, yes, that's the point at which things went wrong, or I developed this phobia or this idea or whatever. But mostly, we don't know. And it, it almost doesn't matter as long as we can do something about it in the present and move forward in a, in a better direction. I like something you said, Diana, about one of your blogs about using our so-called negative thoughts and feelings, anxiety, depression, whatever, as a way of, of being able to know in what direction to point our energies so that we're, we're leaning into these things and turning them into growth experiences without necessarily, am I going to blame my, my mother for this? Or am I going to blame my third grade teacher or whatever? I'm just going to take that and, and move with it in, in a way that's going to make my life better and hopefully for, better for the people around me too, because I won't be such a pain in the ass. Yeah. I, I think that I've had really deep teachings from Thich Han on that. And you'd mentioned No Mud, No Lotus. And this 
past summer, we had an opportunity to go to his monastery in France, where he's planted lotus ponds. And at the end of, I didn't know that this was happening, but it was happening the summer that we were there. I brought my kids, my nine-year-old and my 12-year-old. They were spreading Thich ashes. Oh. And Thich used to always, if you ever see pictures of him, you'll always see him at the front of a very long line of people because he would walk mind, go on these mindful walks and he'd always be holding the children's hands. He always wanted the children at the front because the children were the, the people that actually were the most mindful and they were also our future. And so when they went to go spread the ashes, we were to go on this walk of about 700 people through Plum Village and they asked the kids to go up front. And my son went up to the front and <sighs> He was one of the first people to receive Thich Nhat Hanh's ashes in his hands. And then I, down the road, I received my ashes and we all went and we put them, planted them, lotus pond and aspen trees and plum trees. And afterwards, I saw my son crying and one of the, the nuns in her brown robes and bald head was holding him while he was crying. This is my nine-year-old. And I went up to him to say, like, are you okay? And I was thinking like, this is like intense, like you just had like this dead man's hand, like ashes in your hand. <laughs> it was like intense. So I thought it was just going to be the intensity of the moment or death. Or, And what he said to me was, I feel like I don't deserve to be at the front mm-hmm. and to have this experience. <sighs> and it made me think of what you're talking about, Chris, of it's not about whether or not we deserve mm-hmm. or we don't deserve. I don't know if I deserve to have the clients that walk into my office and share everything. Why do I get to hear all of that when their partner doesn't get to hear all that or their best friend doesn't get to hear it, their mom? I don't know if I deserve that, but it's not about that. Because what the nun said to him, which was so powerful to me, is she said, you've been given a gift. Mm -hmm. Your parents gave you a gift and Thich Nhat Hanh gave you a gift. And now you get to use it. And that's where I feel like our power is, is, is when we receive, even if it's a painful gift, like this pain is, yeah. that's a gift. And, and the question becomes, okay, where am I going to take that next? What is my, it's not about whether my son deserves it or not. What is he going to do with that experience 20 yeah. years down the road? Because he's going to do something with it. I know he is. And we yes. have many of those profound experiences in our life. But we get yeah. caught in the I don't deserve or the shame or the disgust. And it prevents yeah. us from planting those seeds. So, wow. Amazing. Wonderful. So moving. I just want to savor it. Well, I mean, it's, and it's an example. We can never get away from act, obviously, but it's just an example of it's, it's all verbal behavior. It's just the stories that immediately come rushing in to try to organize things in, in usually not a very helpful way. But if we can hold back a little bit, create a little space, there's there's wonderful stuff even in the pain. Yeah. Yeah. And the opportunity, but so moving. The story of your son and so humbling. The children are just so real. <laughs> they just say it as it is. But the reframing of of suffering as a gift it's obviously a very buddhist and a very act sort of consistent way of essentially yeah it is a reframe it's like a way to start to move in in helpful directions and not allow the kind of language that comes with it to get in the way really wonderful i guess we should start thinking about wrapping up 
Well, what do we want people to take from this? For me, what my takeaway is from today is this idea that nobody is in, immune to suffering. Nobody, no matter what happens. We don't get to be inoculated from it. The suffering is everywhere. We will all struggle, and some of our demons can be really quite disgusting, like you said. <laughs> there may be a lot of disgust. And for me, it's this, yeah, this concept that we're, we're not immune, and therefore, how can we all support each other to sort of navigate it with more ease, if possible? And the compassion keeps coming up for me, just in terms of self-compassion and recognizing that we're all suffering for all these different reasons. There's a line from one of Hemingway's books where he talks about the, the world breaks us all, but sometimes we can become stronger at the broken places. Oh, beautiful. And just to say, Diana, that I like you even more after you shared this. Good. Well, I have more secrets in there, so oh, <laughs> I could just have on building the likability, oh. right? Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And, for and again, thank you for all your generous wisdom. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.